Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Ren Bangert, a producer on the Darts team. We are well into our weekly themed programming here on the New Books Network. Every week this summer, we're broadcasting our favorite past episodes of the show. This week's theme is activism and academia. Stay tuned for a whole slate of episodes on this topic. And don't forget, we've got brand new episodes of Darts and Letters launching here on the network starting on September 18th. Today's episode originally aired a little earlier this summer. In the U.S., the January 6th hearings were continuing, and discourse about the factors that led to the insurrection was rampant. You might notice that when these kinds of events take place, similar descriptors are used. Groupthink, mob mentality, de-individuation, and all of these ideas can be traced back to one bigoted, reactionary French physician, Gustave Le Bon. Why does academia always fear the masses? Our host, Gordon Kaddick, takes us through the story of Le Bon and beyond to analyze the academic stereotype of the public. Plus, you get to hear me do impressions of dead philosophers. Take it away, Gordon. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. The January 6th hearings continued this week, live in prime time. The select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on a United States Capitol will be in order. Without objection, I don't think it's going to amount to much. So I'm not really going to go through every development here, but I am going to use this as an opportunity to revisit one thing, how January 6th was talked about by many academics. They offered a few concepts, some psychological ideas that they think could help us understand things, like the concept of collective psychological empowerment. Or how about this one, the feeling of collective victimization. There's also the bystander effect, or the more fancy version of that, de-individualization theory. Or was it a heightened emotional state? Perhaps it was a herd mentality, a mob madness, or a shared psychosis. You get the point. The fancy terms are always a little different, but they all explain the events in basically the same way. January 6th can be understood as the result of a kind of psychosocial pathology. In a word, groupthink. This way of looking at political problems as mass hysteria, it really comes from one man, Gustave Le Bon. Le Bon was a French physician, and he is known as the father of crowd psychology. He was shocked by the revolutions of 1848 and the Paris Commune of 1871. This led him to write his most famous book, The Crowd, a study of the popular mind. We'll get deeper into the ideas later, but for now, basically, Le Bon believed that crowds were fundamentally irrational. Spoiler alert, it is total hokum. The book is reactionary, racist, and just unscientific. In fact, it doesn't really have any real empirical methodology. It is just ignorant, elite anxiety. The social psychologist Stephen Riker put it best. 
Notions like mob madness and mass psychosis are little more than terrified observers looking at the crowd and saying, why on earth are they doing that? They must be mad. These academics have the arrogance to turn their own ignorance into a theory of mass ignorance. When scholars in the 1960s started to actually study crowds, they realized that Le Bon was wrong. These events actually have a kind of order and rationality to them. So crowd theory has been largely discredited. Yet Le Bon's ideas keep resurfacing, even in some of the contemporary academic literature. Here's just one example. I found an article called Crowd Dynamics and Collective Stupidity in the January 6th Riot. The article argues that Le Bon was right all along. You may be thinking, wait, is Gordon about to defend the January 6th rioters? No, of course not. Just to be painfully obvious, I do not support them, and I certainly wouldn't have done what they did. But what I think this episode will reveal is simply that these attitudes can't or shouldn't be explained away at the level of collective psychosis. Whatever the problem is here, it's something deeper something that will take real critical introspection. That's the kind of thing that the Democratic Party just does not want to do. They would much rather deflect. No, no, no. The problem isn't our sclerotic political order. It's that people are pathological dupes. Okay, maybe you just don't care. Maybe you're fine if we pathologize the reactionaries. Fair enough, I guess. I'm not here to defend them. But the fact is, this Laban psychobabble, it's usually applied to things you like, like social movements. In fact, that's kind of the long history of social movements. From the civil rights movement to decolonial struggles to LGBTQ plus and drug user liberation, all those and more. Everywhere where there's a social movement, there's some expert who offers a medicalized concept to assuage anxious liberals. They say, oh, this all stems from attachment issues or bad fathers in broken homes, communist brainwashing, gender dysphoria, cognitive biases, brain diseases, whatever. Movements everywhere and always are pathologized because that is the easiest way to dismiss legitimate claims for social and economic justice. Now, I'm not saying January 6th was that. But I am saying this, let's not boost crowd theory. It may seem convenient to use reactionary ideas to dismiss reactionary movements, but in the end, it's going to backfire. These intellectual weapons will be turned back on us. Today on Darts and Letters, we introduce the first of a recurring series, something we'll come back to from time to time. We are looking at the relationship between scholars and social movements. It is a historically fraught relationship, and on this episode, we springboard from January 6th to tell a much broader intellectual history of elites and the crowd. Professor Joy Rohde will reveal a history of the social sciences that they don't want you to know. These disciplines developed in large part thanks to military largesse, because the U.S. wanted experts who could help them understand the mind of their enemies, and eventually, 
their own citizens. Part of the history of the relationship between the social sciences and the national security state when it comes to studying insurgency and counterinsurgency during the Vietnam War is that the same kinds of theories about disaffection and about insurgency get applied to domestic social movements. But first, Gustave Le Bon, January 6th, and the history of the irrational crowd. All that and more on Darts and Letters. Stay tuned. You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But like Ren said, we are coming back with regular weekly programming this September. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear that, why don't you subscribe to our podcast? Search Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or go to dartsandletters.ca. James Jasper is a prominent social movement theorist. His work looks at the politics of emotion. And really, throughout the entire history of the Western philosophical canon, emotions have got a bad rap. Usually, emotions are opposed to rationality. So rational people control their emotions, and emotional people are, well, irrational. But more recently, there is a long line of critical scholars who have fundamentally challenged this dichotomy. James Jasper is one of them. A few years ago, he was writing a book called The Emotions of Protest, and it argues against seeing emotions in this negative way. But then something really strange and unexpected happened. Donald Trump. And suddenly, Jasper saw his usually progressive colleagues totally change course. Well, it's funny. Academics are a left-leaning bunch, especially those who study social movements. So we've developed all these very sophisticated models for understanding why people protest. They have all sorts of reasons. They feel their way through the world as well as as thinking about certain things and as, as well as having ideologies. And so when Donald Trump came into office, and I would say especially right after January 6th, after the Capitol takeover, most of the social movement scholars I know threw that all out the window and said, these people are crazy, they're a mob, they're employed, employing group think, they're not uh, acting rationally. And so this reflects a very long-standing tradition in which academics or scholars have one way of thinking about the movements they like and a very different way, much more pejorative way of thinking about the movements that they dislike. And so this immediately bubbled up. I said some things in interviews, not anything admiring of these people, but saying, Uh, Look, most of them had not planned to invade the Capitol. A few of them did, and we should distinguish between those. But there was no group mind going on that suddenly made them all insane right-wing insurrectionists that we need to distinguish. Crowds have different kinds of people doing different things. And uh, a lot of my friends were very upset with me about for saying that uh, because they want to believe that these people are all equally evil uh, or equally stupid or equally emotional. So, yeah, it's frustrating to have to go back to 
where we were in the 1950s in a way, when scholars all thought, oh, protesters, the crowd mentality, doing crazy, irrational things. So let's go back to the 1950s. Actually, let's go back much further than that. I'm going to take you on an intellectual journey, a journey through the history of emotions and why experts have always seen the mass as emotional and irrational. My trusty producer, Ren Banger, will help me out playing the part of long-dead philosophers, philosophers like Plato, who likened our appetites to horses that would pull our chariots, but the charioteer of reason could take control. Plato basically thought we had a rational mind and we had irrational appetites. Not unreasonably, said I, shall we claim that they are two and different from one another. That in the soul whereby it reckons and reasons, the rational, and that with which it loves, hungers, thirsts, and feels, Does it belong to the rational part to rule, being wise, and exercising forethought on behalf of the entire soul? Assuredly so. Plato, I think, won the argument by saying, well, you have on the one hand rhetoric with all of its tricks, all of its imagery, its poetry, it can command people's attention and it can command their emotions in a very immediate way, the way it it happens in, in crowds, supposedly. On the other hand, you have real knowledge, true knowledge about how things really are, and that's science. Uh, we would call it today, he called it philosophy, and that these two are very different things. And we've lived with that for 2,300 years now. With that went a, a very serious political program, which was most people are ruled by their passions and they should not really be in charge of society. And you needed people who were trained in philosophy and science. A very small elite should be in charge. Aristotle strikes me as a little bit more nuanced in this sort of talking about the golden mean and in certain circumstances, the kind of emotion like anger is justified and it would be kind of strange not to be slighted or something like that. Anyone can become angry. That is easy. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way, That is not easy. He believed, well, rhetoric is there. It's a thing in the world that we need to understand, whether it's good or bad. And he wasn't always clear. He never said rhetoric is good, although he did defend fiction and drama and other arts that Plato was suspicious of. But Aristotle recognized that rhetoric could be used for bad purposes. Rhetoric could be used to argue things that were not true, as well as as to prove things that were true. So with Aristotle and the other people who recognized the power of rhetoric, there was always this anxiety that you had to have a good person be the rhetorician, be the orator. If a bad person became the orator, they could do bad things with rhetoric. 
a major part of training in ancient rhetoric was to uh, develop a person's moral care, a man's always, a moral character to make them a good person so that they would use this very powerful tool for the good rather than for the bad. At least Aristotle didn't think we had to ban rhetoric and the arts altogether the way Plato did. The Stoics famously, I mean, if you use the word, you know, Stoic to describe someone, it kind of means that they're almost emotionless or they're especially balanced in some way. They uh, became famous or came together as a school, especially in ancient Rome, when there was a dictator. And if you didn't please the dictator, you would be put to death. So they recognized the, the risk of emotions, and it was a real risk for them because uh, of this almost all-powerful emperor who was in charge. So it was sensible, wise, really, for them to try to make sure that people or they didn't lose their temper, didn't show attachments to things in this world other than to the emperor and his authority, really. So clearly rhetoric was an important tool. Later, during the Roman Empire and then through Europe for uh, 1,800 years, Rhetoric was dangerous because there was one person in particular who was the main audience making political decisions. And so rhetoric became about training the prince, pleasing the prince, hoping and, and, and trying to bring it about that the prince was a good person. How do things change during the Enlightenment? Because, you know, on the one hand, you've got the dualism of Descartes and the sort of hardwired evolutionary kind of account of emotions in Darwin and the kind of dispassionate, you know, quote-unquote objective scientist. But at the same time, you have Hume talking about how reason is always a slave to the passions unnecessarily so. So maybe there are conflicting views here. But how does the sort of terrain of the politics of, of emotion change during the Enlightenment? I would say in the 18th century, you had the development of a point of view that emotions could be a good thing, that emotions attach us to other people, so this was Locke's argument, these natural sympathies that we have for other people put some constraints on how we will behave. Whereas Hobbes thought uh, in a more traditional way that people would just be as nasty as they could get away with, Locke thought that there were some constraints. Rousseau also believed that people had uh, sort of left to their own devices in the state of nature, had these natural sympathies for one another. They cared, they had love. And this is a view that then works its way into the romantics. It is then certain that compassion is a natural feeling, which by moderating the violence of love of self in each individual, contributes to the preservation of the whole species. It is this compassion that hurries us without reflection to the relief of those who are in distress. It is this which in a state of nature supplies the place of laws, morals, and virtues. In a word, it is rather in this natural feeling than in any subtle arguments that we must look, although it might belong to Socrates and other minds of the like craft to acquire virtue by reason, the human race would long since have ceased to be had its preservation depended only on the reasonings of the individuals composing it. 
But intellectuals had trouble with Rousseau's optimism when working people started to actually revolt. So they turned to our old friend, Gustave Le Bon, the guy I mentioned at the start, the father of crowd psychology. Today, the claims of the masses are becoming more and more sharply defined and amount to nothing less than a determination to utterly destroy society as it now exists, with a view to making it hark back to that primitive communism, which was the normal condition of all human groups before the dawn of civilization. You know, in your book, you... You basically say like virtually every scholarly account during the 20th century of, you know, social movements embraced this sort of crowd theory. It was kind of the, the consensus for, you know, at least about 100 years. Yeah, it was fairly typical. The revolutions across Europe in 1848 scared the crap out of middle class uh, urban dwellers. And that includes journalists and academics. And so... There were a number of figures, not just Le Bon, but across Europe who began studying the crowd. How could this happen? Who are these people? What do they want? And they very quickly came to a kind of consensus that, around the idea that if you put a bunch of people together, especially with a demagogue at their head, urging them on and uh, giving inflammatory speeches, they will do things they wouldn't do in their normal lives. The most careful observations seem to prove that an individual immersed for some length of time in a crowd soon finds himself, either in consequence of the magnetic influence given out by the crowd, or from some other cause of which we are ignorant, in a special state, which much resembles the state of fascination in which the hypnotized individual finds himself in the hands of the hypnotizer. The activity of the brain being paralyzed, he becomes the slave of all the unconscious activities of his spinal cord, which the hypnotizer directs at will. Such also is approximately the state of the individual forming part of a psychological crowd. This is a view that uh, made sense to intellectuals and anybody who uh, had sort of a middle-class life in the 19th century and the early 20th century. So whether it was Freud or any of the early sociologists, historians, they all believed in this crowd theory. And it, it took a long time for anybody to actually go do research into crowds and to see what really happens in crowds. Right. I mean, reading his book, I was really kind of shocked. You know, ostensibly a physician might have an empirical methodology. Certainly doesn't. It is just like basically a creation of his own mind palace, also, he said crowds are largely defined by, like, the characteristics of the race of the crowd, like really kind of venal stuff. We can't understate its, its influence. I mean, it was massively influential. Why do you think it was so influential? Well, and it was influential, especially on the police and policing of crowds and, and of protests. And it remained influential well past the middle of the 20th century in armies of occupation all over the poorer countries, the colonial countries, the police there were taught crowd theory, essentially, and how to control crowds. And so it flattered the uh, white European and American men who essentially ran the colonial, colonial empire. It said that uh, men were rational, women were not. And so crowds were described very explicitly as feminine, as difficult 
but also ultimately submissive. In fact, they were submissive to the demagogues who were running them, who were controlling them. The other thing that happened was elites were scared. They were scared of the working class beginning to organize itself into political parties. There were other efforts to have revolutions. There were other revolutions, as in Russia. So uh, it was part of the continuing series of red scares that happened, especially in in the U.S., but in Europe as, as well. Elites were, these were their nightmares. Crowd theory fed perfectly into those nightmares. I mean, famously, he said that the divine right of the masses is about to replace the divine right of kings. And for listeners of this, they might go, sign me up for that. But that's not what he meant. Um, <laughs> um, so, I mean, let's let's sort of take, take uh, I don't want to just say he's bad. I mean, I do think he's bad. I mean, what's wrong with his argument? Well, it turns out when, when people started studying crowds, people gather in crowds not as isolated individuals, They come with friends, with family. They come in groups. They might belong to a local trade union or a local group, a neighborhood association. So they arrive with people they know. So they're not going to do really crazy things that would get either get them in trouble back at home or that they'd be embarrassed about later. And then... Once they're there, they stand around talking to their friends more than listening to the speeches. So people in crowds are a diverse bunch. They leave with the same small groups they arrive with typically, and they have different uh, attitudes toward the crowd. Some really are true believers, and they love to hear that speech, and they came for that Others came because uh, their friend was going, and so, okay, I'll go, or the weather was nice. That said, there are some elements that are valid in crowd theory, which would be, to some extent, if you see somebody else doing something, you think, okay, well, why not? I might do it too. It's maybe the thing to do. So to go back to January 6th, if I had come up, if I had been part of that improbably, been part of that Trump march. And I had gotten to the Capitol, the U.S. Capitol, and the doors were open. There were no police saying, don't go in. I might see some glass and wonder about that. But if everybody else is walking in, I probably would have walked into just out of curiosity, which is a very different motive from the Proud Boys and the others who got there first and did the real fighting and broke things down. So there are different elements of a crowd and sequences of a crowd. There's also a certain emotional contagion that goes on in crowds. That's why we go to concerts. That's why we go to sporting events. That's why we have a drink at the bar rather than always at our own house, because there's a kind of fellow feeling that we like. And maybe sometimes it does warp into something, but not like categorically in the way that LeBond does. Here's the trick. We go to these things knowing what we're going to feel. We go to a protest because we want to feel angry. We want to feel outraged and indignant. And we know if we go and there's a big crowd of people who feel the same way, that will sort of re- rejuvenate my feelings of outrage, right? So we know what we're doing. It's not like 
we just happen to go to this crowd and we're swept up uh, and start doing things or shouting things that we don't really believe. The idea that the individual is somehow more rational. I mean, you know, as far back as Adam Smith talking about thinking about a third party impartial spectator in your own mind because it checks your kind of eccentricities. And I think we've all felt this way before where, you know, we've been stewing in our own uh, feelings about something for a day and driving ourselves kind of mad. And then we tell a friend and suddenly it kind of gets corrected a little bit. Like we get a little new perspective. Oh, it's not as bad. Like let's, you know, talk it through. So, so suddenly like the, the presence of another is actually kind of more rational than your own lonesome self, which is what Lebon thought of as kind of the most rational. In solitude, we are apt to feel too strongly whatever relates to ourselves. The conversation of a friend brings us to a better, that of a stranger to a still better temper. It is always from that spectator from whom we can expect the least sympathy and indulgence that we are likely to learn the most complete lesson of self-command. The other thing I was thinking about is kind of the rationality of crowds, like the collective logic. I, I remember to think I'll never forget, I was in, I'm Croatian, I was in Croatia during the uh, World Cup. We lost to France, unfortunately, but still for a country of, of that size, it was an enormous celebratory moment. So basically the whole country, you know, descends onto Zagreb till like four in the morning is celebrating in this joyous kind of raucous carnivalesque atmosphere. And there are moments where, I'll give you an example, it's like two in the morning or something and I'm there with my friends and family and we're drinking and like this whole street is completely blocked by this uh, raucous crowd and cars drive through or, or try to drive through really slowly and the whole crowd gives these cars a little kind of like love shake essentially in a, in a joyous way not in like I'm going to flip you over kind of way you know cars are honking etc etc cars pass by this keeps happening and then and then this other car comes through but there's a baby in the back seat. And then suddenly the crowd like goes, no, 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 we're not shaking this one. Let it go through. No one dared shake the car uh, because of that sort of like collective intelligence, which which never really shows up in Le Bon or 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 these kind of early crowd theorists. No. That's a great that's a great example. Uh, so speaking of football crowds, they're the famous hooligans which at first would seem to fit the Laban theory that you put a bunch of people in a stadium and they, they go berserk and they get, then get into fights. There's, a, there's very interesting research about the very tiny groups of people who go to these matches very specifically because they like getting into fights. It's sort of like the Proud Boys wanting to get into a confrontation with police. And so they go and they very carefully figure out, well, who should they attack? Where should they go? How best to get into a real fight with opposing fans and so on. So there's nothing irrational about it. There's nothing momentary and sudden about it. It's carefully planned. They get on a plane in Birmingham and go to uh, Milan or something like that in order to get into fights after the match or during the match. So it's not something I would do. So it seems irrational to me, 
but it's not because of its emotions. It's because they like violence. So how do these theories influence folks like we mentioned Freud and then Edward Bernays and also Walter Lippmann and kind of theories of the public sphere, propaganda and kind of political control in the mid-century? Well, the progressive movement in the, in the U.S., and there were echoes, I mean, similar movements elsewhere, were essentially about fears of the expansion of the franchise to less educated, poor, working class folks. And so they were afraid that these people could be influenced by populist demagogues and, uh, you know, vote the wrong way. Experiment shows that the speed, the accuracy, and the intellectual quality of association is deranged by what we are taught to call emotional conflicts. They distort our reading, our thinking, our talking, and our behavior in a great variety of ways. And finally, since opinions do not stop at the normal members of society, since the purposes of an election, of propaganda, of a following, is that numbers constitute power the quality of attention is still further depressed. The mass of absolutely illiterate, of feeble-minded, grossly neurotic, undernourished and frustrated individuals is very considerable, much more considerable there is reason to think than we generally suppose. Thus, a wide popular appeal is circulated among persons who are mentally children or barbarians. From Walter Lippmann's Public Opinion, same with women, uh, who, whose franchise was up, uh, up, suffrage was up for grabs in the UK and the US and a lot of other countries. Could they be counted on to be rational voters, which for these intellectuals and elites meant, can we trust them to vote for us? So there was a lot of fear over mass advertising. Even while corporations were very happy to use it, there were fears among intellectuals that people could be manipulated very easily. And this developed in the middle of the 20th century into what was known as mass society theory. Jasper tells me that the real turning point was the feminist movement and the feminist scholars who followed it. These scholars attacked the emotion versus reason dichotomy and pointed out the very gendered way this was talked about. Men are rational because they're not emotional, and women are irrational because they are emotional. Feminist scholars pointed out that this was really socially constructed. What emotions are recognized, what emotions are allowed, and who gets called emotional, well, that's a political question. Plus, the feminists showed that emotions aren't purely biological. They're not natural things. They are in a social and political context. So they need to be dealt that way, socially and politically. So says Alison M. Jagger. Although it is probably true that the physiological disturbances characterizing emotions, facial grimaces, changes in the metabolic rate, sweating, trembling, tears, and so on, are continuous with the instinctive responses of our pre-human ancestors. Mature human emotions can be seen neither as instinctive nor as biologically determined. Instead, they are socially constructed on several levels. 
the most obvious way in which emotions are socially constructed is that children are taught deliberately what their culture defines as appropriate responses to certain situations. Emotions are simultaneously made possible and limited by the conceptual and linguistic resources of a society. Romantic love was invented in the Middle Ages in Europe, and since that time has been modified considerably. In some cultures, romantic love does not exist at all. The emotions that we experience reflect prevailing forms of social life. It's not just the women's movement and the feminist scholars. You've also got the civil rights movement and liberation movements in the global south, plus Paris 68. All these social movements, they kind of radicalize parts of the academy. Then you've got uh, a phenomenon of people who had been active in those movements, then going off to graduate school, becoming scholars, writing about movements they knew very well. So in contrast to the crowd theories, uh, crowd theorists who had never been in a crowd, uh, you had people who had spent a lot of time, often as professional activists, in social movements. And so they understood much better how they worked. What did, what did having this kind of uh, crowd theorist, crowd theory kind of um, intellectual milieu mean for the way that uh, the civil rights uh, movements were perceived of at the time and, and other social movements. Like, I guess the question I'm really asking is like, what's at stake or what was at stake for social movements um, given this uh, sort of intellectual stance that was, or intellectual lens that was so often applied to them? Even the civil rights movement was sort of dismissed as disgruntled, alienated, young black people who didn't have a place, who were either criminals or close to being criminals. They weren't respected as members of communities. A lot of early research showed, well, the kinds of people who were sitting in and protesting were, in fact, 18-year-olds, teenagers who were the most connected to their community. They were more likely to go to church than non-participants. They were the student leaders in their high schools and their colleges. They were very well connected. They were not alienated. Um, again, it happened in with the riots uh, from 63 on, 68 riots especially. At first, they were sort of dismissed as just a bunch of criminals who wanted to grab a TV or a bottle of liquor. Um, and then again, uh, researchers went and found that... Uh, these were people with real grievances. They, this was a form of protest. It wasn't just a form of, it wasn't a crime spree. The rioters, again, were more likely to be connected to their communities, uh, to be student leaders and so on, and to be known to other people. These were not outsiders. These were not alienated individuals, just um, um, pissed off in general about life. As a scholar of emotions, I mean, what do you think's at stake when we kind of like um, pathologize people for having the wrong emotions or we think of crowds as this kind of like orgiastic, irrational, libidinal sort of uh, emotional impulse rather than everything we've been talking about, all the kind of infrastructure that undergirds, you know, a social movement and the interests that underlie why people are there and the organizing, you know, all that. I mean, what does it mean to sort of besmirch it as this kind of irrational emotion? At bottom, it's a matter of political and social control. 
It's uh, political elites who are always worried about crowds. And this is true not just of political crowds, but of the reactions to disasters. They worry that people are going to just fall apart. Elites kind of in what you could say panic about panics. They think normal people can't take care of themselves and they need experts and they need outside intervention and they need government agencies somehow to come in and take care of them immediately. And until then, they're just helpless. The irony there, the elites are panicking. They think we're panicking. They're worried about losing control. That was James Jasper. He is a scholar of social movements, and his most recent book is called The Emotions of Protest. You've heard the ideas, but let's talk a little bit more about how they've been used. We'll see that there's a long history of these ideas being used to dismiss liberation movements in the global south and peace activists closer to home. That's after the break. If you like what we do, I want you to help get this show to more people. The fastest and easiest way to do that is by giving us a rating and a review wherever you heard this podcast. Better still, tell a friend or tweet about us. Don't forget to tag at Darts and Letters. Okay, on with the show. Joy Rohde is a historian of the social sciences in the United States, but her work looks at a part of that history that is often ignored. Here's the dirty little secret. A lot of these kinds of ideas that we've been talking about on this episode, you know, the whole kind of move of understanding resistance as some sort of psychosocial pathology, well, a lot of this research has been bought and paid for by the U.S. military. Within the United States, the social sciences really get established as academic fields and as policy-relevant fields in relationship to national security concerns. And you can really go all the way back to World War I. Psychology was not represented as a discipline on most university campuses. But during World War I, a team of psychologists got together with some military officials to develop a battery of intelligence and manpower sort of assignment tests in order to you know, mobilize for war, mobilize men for military service. And that put psychology on the map as a relevant discipline in the United States. But World War II is when social scientists really mobilize, along with the sciences generally, for war. And the relationships that, and the kind of experiences that social scientists have mobilizing during the war helps solidify their ties to the state and their sense that the social sciences can really be a force for sort of social engineering and social betterment after the war. The other reason besides kind of intellectual synergies that the social sciences and the national security state become so deeply imbricated in the United States has to do with the history of funding for the social sciences. Yeah. So the social sciences were always kind of the like bastard stepchildren of the sciences. There was a lot of concern that they're not, they weren't rigorous, right? They didn't have those signs of scientific and political legitimacy that scientists had, say, if you take sort of physics as the example of what science is supposed to look like, you know, how can we have a science of politics? How can we have a science of people? They seem so complex and unpredictable. 
So, you know, in the wake of the establishment of basically after World War II, when the National Science Foundation is created, which is the like one of the main funding instruments of science in the United States, of federal funding of science, the people who design it exclude the social sciences entirely. So they don't have a lot of options for where to go. But for the military, the social sciences are so cheap in comparison to developing weapons. So why not throw a few million dollars in their direction to see if they can address these kinds of security problems? I was just talking to uh, Jim Jasper, a social movement theorist, and we were talking about Gustave Le Bon, and it was interesting, you know, reading The Crowd, a very monstrous book. But what does he say is the kind of one of the, the key variables in terms of the way that a crowd operates, the sort of racial characteristics of the crowd, which which leads me into a question I had about the Office of Strategic Services, now going forward a little bit in time, and this whole kind of milieu of national character studies, you know, what, like, give the audience one example, which I pulled from your your article here. You had an anthropologist named Jeffrey Agorer arguing that, you know, Japanese aggression was this sort of pent-up rage over the toilet training. <laughs> uh, you know, like, bizarre. You know, the, the more and more you read this stuff, the more you think, my God, you know, how did this pass for for science uh, or, you know, whatever. But what were these national character studies? What what role did they, did they play in the kind of um, American imperial project? Yeah, national character studies are fascinating because they look to us now like they are so silly. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they were really based on the idea that societies themselves almost had psychologies, right? And that by understanding the upbringing of individuals in a society by understanding how families related to one another, how children were reared, you could explain why it was that, you know, the Japanese ostensibly acted in one particular way, whereas the Germans or the French might act another way. And, you know, this carries on, even though it itself, it becomes kind of not discredited so much as sort of set aside as not as scientific as we would like things to be after World War II. Mm -hmm. It gets carried on in theories about, you know, what accounts for totalitarianism. There's the whole hypothesis that, you know, it was because of the way that the Russians swaddled babies that they were more likely to embrace authoritarian leadership than Americans. And so, you know, after World War II, in the context of all this concern about the future of American democracy, right? If the Germans could fall sway to the Nazis and they had a mass society and if the Americans could fall sway because we too have a mass society, like how should we be raising our children? How should we be educating our children so that the American national character remains committed to, you know, liberal agency, autonomy and democracy? Fascinating. I mean, that uh, who, who was that, that theorist a few years ago had... Um the study, you know, where he talked about the various sort of psychological characteristics of a liberal mind versus uh, a conservative one. And it was some sort of like pop psychology, essentially of like, oh, conservatives are into this kind of purity thing and liberals are kind of into this. So this constant recurring pattern of like psychologizing people's political ideology or whatever movement they belong to that that constantly comes up uh, in this history rather than seeing things as material interests or something that might actually be rational 
I mean, rationality also becomes a really pernicious kind of category of thinking in the social sciences, mm. right? So the notion that we should always be making rational choices about everything, you know, it very much underpins economic thought now, and it underpins nuclear strategy, which is again in the forefront, um, given uh, the war in Ukraine. A famous economist who was really uh, important in establishing nuclear strategy in the Cold War named Thomas Schelling said, something to the effect of if we can kill hundreds of thousands of people irrationally with a nuclear bomb, we ought to be able to figure out how to kill 20,000 people rationally mm. in the pursuit of, of the goals of our war in Vietnam. And so rationality becomes a way of saying, you know, your emotional ties, your ties to your community, your, yes. your social ties are improper ways of making decisions right? Or your um, heartfelt, like pacifistic feeling that maybe we shouldn't be in Vietnam. Well, that's right. simply irrational and unacceptable, <laughs> which is a way of making social movements themselves, right? Painting them as irrational if they don't align with the sort of status quo political values of the time period. So you mentioned Vietnam, and we talked a little bit about kind of the national character and thinking about whether or not a country would sort of become totalitarian or whatever. I mean, what about the the studying of insurgency and the studying a sort of resistance? So one of the biggest, one of the most influential theories in the social sciences and in national security circles in the 1950s and for part of the 1960s is modernization theory. And the idea of modernization theory was that all nations are kind of on a linear, they're on a ladder from not savagery, let's say, but from a sort of a state of peasantry to a state of civilization. Modernization theory sought to identify the kind of levers that states or philanthropies or others could sort of pull in order to speed up that transition from sort of savagery to civilization. And this becomes really important in the context of decolonization around the world, right? So 1950s, early 1960s, the United States and the Soviet Union perceived themselves as, you know, locked in a battle for global dominance. And part of what that means is getting those new nations in Africa, those um, decolonized but still emerging nations in Latin America, in Southeast Asia to sign on to one side or the other. The goal is, of course, an American liberal capitalist democracy. But somehow some nations get swayed in the direction of communism. Modernization theory explains that movement, explains the pull towards communism as a kind of psychosis of economic, political, and social development, and sought to find ways to keep people away from that sway. But as national security planners looked around the world, they saw, you know, these communist notions are catching on, right? They're, they catch on, you know, in North Korea, for example, um, in Vietnam, there's concern, you know, about Pakistan, about India. And so modernization theory also branches into the study of insurgency and counterinsurgency. Right. So if you're building a nation, ideally you can build it peacefully, but sometimes you can't. Right. There's social unrest on the way to modernization. And so counterinsurgency, the study of insurgency becomes 
a field also populated by political scientists, sociologists, anthropologists that try to understand what leads people to join insurgent movements, right? How can we identify those triggers before that instability, that violence erupts? And what can states do? What can militaries do? What can development aid programs do to circumvent those insurgencies and put those societies back on that appropriate path to modernization? In practice, what that looks like, you know, what one person's or one state's instability and insurgency is, is another state's social movement for decolonization, you know, for national sovereignty. So I think you use the word psychosis or sort of pathology. I mean, when there is, you know, say a, a third world social movement or non-aligned movement or something like that, a kind of decolonial movement, how does the modernization theorist explain their intransigence, essentially, their unwillingness to, to go on these uh, predetermined steps towards civilizational enlightenment. One of the real impediments that modernization theorists saw on this path that would explain intransigence is that people in a certain community, let's say in Vietnam, were being duped by the communists. They explained why that was happening in the countryside in a number of different ways, none of which actually reflected the real material things going on on the ground, like government corruption, seizure of cropland, lack of recognition of, you know, Buddhism's place in society. They explained it as an amazing and insidious technique that the communists had developed to build cadres, where the peasants would basically be taken from their families, right, uh, inaugurated into these fighting units where they would, you know, every day or every week get together with the people they were assigned to and talk about their failings. Mm. And it was through this, theorists argued, and it was called self-criticism sessions. And through these self-criticism sessions, the peasants learned to identify not with their families as they had, you know, before they modernized, nor with the, the government, the state in Saigon, which was the goal. That was how you knew you were modernized. You identified with the nation before you identified with any more personal connections. They learned to identify with their fellow cadre members. So it's, it's kind of like a, a psychological, almost a form of psychological warfare that pulls them off that path to modernity. So that's like they were... Um disaffected and they got in with the wrong crew that like supported them and gave them some kind of social psychological comfort. And then that is why they've decided uh, to join the resistance rather than those earlier things that you mentioned about the, how the, the government was functioning and whether or not it was functioning in the interests of those people that were uh, resisting. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly, you know, it couldn't be about ideology. Like they couldn't actually think that communism might be a better system <laughs> than, than the American-backed system. So it seems to me that these ideas are really easily applied to the local context, to civic unrest, to social movements in the United States. Is that the case? Do, do some of these ideas get applied within the nation's uh, borders? Oh, yeah, they do. It's pretty troubling, actually, but part of the history of the relationship between the social sciences and the national security state when it comes to studying insurgency and counterinsurgency 
uh, during the Vietnam War is that the same kinds of theories about disaffection um, and about insurgency get applied to domestic social movements mm. in the U.S. So, you know, scholars have pointed to things like COINTELPRO, right, as, as examples of surveillance of domestic social movements. Some of the same theorists who advised the U.S. Army about how to think about insurgency in South Vietnam also advised policing organizations in the United States about how to think about, you know, what at the time were called race riots, mm -hmm. how to think about campus movements against the war. And they frame them in similar ways, right? So disaffected youth who are failing to identify with the state in the appropriate ways, who are rejecting the sort of status quo system. I mean, the new left uses that language itself. Mm -hmm. And so it became an easy way to really paint dissent as a form of insurgency. That's fascinating. So I'm curious if you could kind of, um, I guess, name names, uh, as, as they say. I mean, who are the kinds of scholars um, and what kind of research initiatives do you have in mind when you when you're talking about how the the campus movements or the civil rights movements are are looked at? So the example that I know best isn't a very well known example, but I think it's a really troubling example. So during the Cold War, one way that the U.S. military would get more academic expertise into its advising, but without sort of having to bring social scientists into the military itself, was by creating institutions called federal research contract centers. So these were sort of quasi state, they're state funded, but they're quasi independent. They're not located within the Pentagon or within federal agencies. And one that was really tasked with by the army with trying to figure out how to understand insurgency was called the Special Operations Research Office. Mm -hmm. And it was located at American University in Washington, DC. And it was created in 1956 by the US Army. During the Vietnam War, the Special Operations Research Office wrote a series of books to study what they called the phases of civil disturbance. So a civil disturbance is something short of a war, short of an insurgency, but it's enough unrest that you're maybe concerned that, you know, you're on the path towards some form of insurgency. And so the authors of that phases of civil disturbance series, and the main author was a man named Carl Rosenthal, turn that knowledge onto social movements in the United States to try and articulate, one, what's going on? Why are these young people acting how they're acting? And two, what interventions could the U.S. state take in order to redirect this civil disturbance, clamp down on this civil disturbance? And the concern is not so much with why, and what needs can we necessarily meet, at least in Rosenthal's work, the concern is simply how do we reestablish order? Mm. His work, you know, if you recall that this is in the context both of an increasingly militant civil rights movement as well as an anti-war movement, some of the concern about student activism quickly kind of, at least in the social science literature, moves into a concern about racial unrest and the possibility of a race war. And Rosenthal's line was basically, if we don't do something, we could have a race war in his terms on our hands. 
And so the question isn't what's going on, but what do we do to make it stop? So you often, I think in his work, it sort of ends up with the kind of boilerplate responses that you see at the time anyway, mm. which is, you know, tear gas, rubber bullets. It's in a sense, the kind of justification for the interventions that are already happening on the ground. And one of the agencies that funds this work was the Army's Limited Warfare Laboratory. I mean, this is another one of these terms for things that aren't quite war, limited war, <laughs> right? What kinds of weapons do you need to develop then in that context? So his advice is to that laboratory to say, hmm. develop better methods, like sonic methods for um, disrupting crowds and making them leave. You know, hmm. could we have smell bombs was another another project. I mean, one of the questions I have uh, in general, you know, we talk about a lot of people, but how you tend to conceptualize these social scientists that worked so um, hand in glove with the state and against the people and social movements. Um, do you see them as kind of uh, intellectually ambitious? Like they're they're using these as kind of research opportunities or is there something more ideologically motivated or or kind of sinister my my general question is how to sort of be morally and politically conceive of these people that um that participate in these kinds of state funded projects and and why, why they do so that's such a hard question to answer you know as a historian i've seen my job as to try to understand these actors on their own terms. And they certainly thought of themselves, they thought of themselves in a few different ways. Some of them said, I'm producing scientific knowledge. What you choose to do with it, you bear the ethical burden for that. And, and that to me is the most problematic perspective because it denies any kind of political agency being attached to the knowledge that they produced. Right. That knowledge is a form of power and and the producers bear some responsibility for it. Then the knowledge that we all produce um, is is by its very nature potentially powerful and depending on where we sit institutionally, more or less powerful. Um, and so to me, that's the important lesson, I think, as a scholar, is to really consider carefully. Um, that, you know, as the great uh, STS scholar Donna Haraway has written, like, there is no innocent ground to stand on. And so I'm less interested in judging these people. It's really easy to judge them ethically. Um, I mean, some of them, many of them did, I mean, the research is very questionable. Um, the motivations were sometimes careerist, sometimes nationalist, you know, often at least implicitly racist. Um, but by looking at the, at what they did and the relationships that they built and taking that work seriously, uh, even though it has all of these problems, I think it helps us see these other more systematic, more systematized relationships between scholars in the state. And that's what I really, um, think needs to be, uh, fleshed out, right? Less so than kind of individual blame and complicity. 
Yeah, and I mean, the more that I, I read uh, about this history, you know, through your, your own work and, and others, you there, there's kind of an easy way to sort of tell this story as these are kind of like imperial researchers or something. But you look at the biographies of a lot of them, they're, you know, avowedly leftist or were at some point. They see themselves in really kind of liberal, internationalist, humanitarian terms almost. And, and you know, like the Rand Corporation case in point, like they say that this is like to make a more, a less violent and troubling world. So their their intentions are not what we would maybe expect of them, knowing where they work and, and who they work for, which is really kind of troubling, I guess, for me. It's not easy to just sort of call them a, a boogeyman. Yeah. And we, I think we really risk our own ability to seriously ethically engage when we can write off, you know, our adversaries or bad actors in the past on those grounds, right? It's so easy to paint I mean, Walt Rostow, even people who worked with him very closely, they didn't like him. But, you know, if we write him off or, or if we write off this Cold War moment as this kind of blinkered period in American history, then we really miss the extent to which it still shapes the relationship between social science and the state. It still shapes the political legitimacy of certain ideas that are projected around the world. Mm. And so it's attending to those things right? Those threads, instead of burying them under a kind of easy critique of technocracy. Right, right. That I think is so important. I guess maybe the last question I have is if there is a modern parallel. Um, and, you know, forgive me if I'm being a little polemical here, but like thinking about counter-terror, thinking about counter far right kind of movements like burgeoning scholarship looking at disinformation uh disaffection you know the kind of militias and and right wing um insurgencies or whatever we want to call them they have a very different um kind of ideological valence but I, I see a lot of that research as potentially similar in the way that it's being funded and conceptualized and maybe providing a bit of rhetorical um, and ideological support to a new kind of security state um, countering a new kind of threat. Let me think about this because I don't, I don't know as much about the landscape of the emerging research on disinformation on the far right and militias. What I think is interesting, but that I haven't thought about that much, but my first inclination in response to your question is what's different is the amount of time that it has taken for those same kinds of national security logics to be brought to bear on concerns about right-wing militias and insurgencies in the United States. So it, you know, it was the move from thinking about insurgency in Vietnam to worrying about insurgency, you know, in the urban United States was overnight. You know, those things mapped onto each other immediately. The idea that, you know, the stages of civil disturbance that were developed in the 60s could be applied to right-wing militias now, it, 
it, it hasn't, the fit hasn't been as neat within policy spaces. And I wonder how much that has to do with the implicitly racialized nature, not only of the research, but of American public policy. But, but as a counterpoint, I mean, I do see kind of like discourses of like uh, contagion of bad information and, you know, psychological subcultures online uh, leading uh, young men astray, you know, little, uh, what was it, the word you used for like the little- oh, the uh, little cadres. Little cadres, yeah, the little right? self-criticism. Yeah, no, I think, I think that you're right. This question of the notion that it must be something in people's personalities or psyches that lead them astray rather than, for example, failures by the state, failures by a social safety net, failures of an education system, failures of an economy, um, that there must, there's got to be a reason that we can blame those individuals or at least find an individualistic explanation for what they're doing, because it certainly can't be the result of the society that we have collectively created. That was Joy Rohde. She is an associate professor of public policy at the University of Michigan. I highly recommend her book, Armed with Expertise, The Militarization of American Social Research During the Cold War. That's from Cornell University Press. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. If you like what we heard, consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Or you can support the show by giving it a rating or a review on your favorite podcatcher. Darts and Letters is produced by Jay Coburn, Mark Apollonio, and Ren Bangert. Our marketing assistant is Ian Souten. Our graphic designer is Dakota Coop. And I'm your host and editor, Gordon Caddick. This episode was part of a wider series that is looking at the relationship between social movements and academia. It received funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Our scholarly advisors on this series are professors Leslie Wood at York University and Sigurd Smaltzer at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. We also received research support from Charmaine Khan, Sammy McBriar, and Susanna Mulvale. Thanks for listening. <laughs>